Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Peter Greisel is professor of economics at Washington and Lee University, where he teaches courses in introductory economics, microeconomic theory, comparative institutional economics, and mathematical methods. He has published on a range of topics pertaining to the emergence, the functioning, and the impact of different legal, political, and economic institutions and modes of governance, as well as cultural norms and ideas in multiple parts of the world. Peter Morell is professor of economics at the University of Maryland, where he teaches courses in comparative economic institutions and thinking like an economist. His research interests have always been in comparative economic institutions, focusing first on the socialist economies of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and on the social democracies of post-war Western Europe, then on the institutional forms in post-Soviet countries and China, and currently on the genesis of the first modern economic and political institutions, those of 17th century England. Today we'll be discussing Professor Greisel and Murrell's June 2022 Law and History Review article, Using Topic Modeling in Legal History with an application to pre-industrial English case law on finance. Professor Spragel and Morrell, welcome to the show. Thank you very yeah. much. We're very happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Could you provide a brief description of the objective of your article and an overview of what topic modeling is? We'd be happy to answer that question, but I'm afraid we're not gonna be brief because really to understand this paper that we've written, we have to go back through a lot of history of our research and our experiences. And really, the genesis of this paper began a long while ago. I'm not sure I want to say how long ago, when I was growing up in England. And there, the sort of cultural understanding of how societies developed was much more of what I would characterize as an evolutionary process in which societies built institutions, they were tested, they were matched with others and so on over a very gradual process. And then I came to the United States and I would say that if you ask the average high school graduate in the United States how their country was built, they would say the constitution. So things are written down and decided at a specific point in time. And I kept this thought with me for a long, long time. Um, I was studying Eastern Europe and China and the Soviet Union, and it stayed with me all the time. And then uh, there was the revolutions against the communist system in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. We began the time period called transition where these countries were trying to change themselves. And in the literature on that episode, which I contributed to, a lot of people emphasized English history and they characterized it in a way that I thought was very different from that which I was used to. In particular, they focused on particular points in time in English history and talked about the legal system, the law being created at those times, particularly focusing on the glorious revolution of 1688 and the Bill of Rights that followed. So 
this thought stayed in my mind until I felt that what I really had to do was to go back to English history and study it much better and see if my cultural understandings that I grew up with were really correct about English history. And it was about the time then when Peter Greisel became my graduate student and we wrote a paper together on the role of lawyers as interest groups in England and particularly focused on the 17th century when the lawyers were very powerful. And so we kept this in mind about the power of lawyers. And then about 10 years later, we decided to start working again on English history. And we immediately started thinking about how lawyers thought about the world. And we realized that in order to attack that issue, we would have to have real knowledge of texts. And this time machine learning was beginning to come out being very important in political science already. Not much known in economics, not much known in uh, legal history and so on. So we taught ourselves machine learning and began to analyze various texts with that tool. We uh, wrote a paper on Bacon and particularly showed how his scientific methodology was related to his legal ideas. Then we wrote a paper on using topic modeling, connecting Bacon and Cook together and showing how their legal ideas were very close to each other, even though they're sometimes characterized as enemies and opposites, and that those legal ideas that they had in common were very much related to methodological issues about science. So we were very happy with those papers, and we decided to expand this work a lot by going to the compendium of English cases at that time. It runs from the earliest times until 1865. This is the English reports. And really, the number of cases begins to be enough to do machine learning in about the 1550s or something like that. So we decided to write papers analyzing the English reports using topic modeling and just to see what we could get out of it, to investigate existing hypotheses. And in particular, in the back of our mind was always this question, which I phrased in an earlier paper as design versus evolution. You know, in, in what way was the law generated? And could we see an evolutionary process in the generation of law? And so we wrote two papers using topic modeling on that data set from the English reports. We ended our study at 1765 because we thought that was a great dividing line in English economic history between sort of pre-industrial and the beginning of industrial times. And we published a couple of papers on that. And then we decided, okay, we think we've developed a way to do legal history that is very different from anything we've read 
while we were doing our previous papers. And we really wanted to convey that methodology to legal historians for a couple of reasons. Uh, obviously, the self-interested one of conveying to legal historians what we've done and trying to get them interested in that, but also talking about how what we needed much more was legal historians and people who were doing machine learning to complement each other's works and to work together. Because as painful as it is for a legal historian to learn the computational methods, it was doubly painful for us to read the history with its specialist language and the deep background that legal historians have. And so we saw an opportunity where the two fields could really complement each other. And I think that was the strongest message that we wanted to convey when we wrote our paper for the Law and History Review. That was great. So I think my part is about an overview of topic modeling, right? So when I think of topic modeling, I sort of think of four components, right? On the one hand, um, it's, it's a computational method. Computational method in the sense that it leverages computer power to produce succinct, parsimonious summaries of a large volume of texts. I mean, in, in our work, we like to use this language of producing a digest of text. And you can think of that digest as being comprised of chapters, for example. And those chapters are typically referred to as topics. It's a machine learning method because it leverages an optimization algorithm, so an optimization procedure to generate the chapters of this digest or topics. So it doesn't just rely on counting words in documents, but it actually uses a generative probabilistic model of language, literally a simple model of how is it that text appears in a document, how words appear in a document, and then it uses estimation methods, optimization methods to pin down parameters that help you ultimately then pin down sort of the boundaries of the chapters of that digest. And importantly, it's an unsupervised method, unsupervised in the sense that the chapters of this digest or the topics are discovered through this process. They're not somehow, you know, assumed ex ante and then kind of verified exposed in the data. So it's such, lots of people, especially in humanities, refer to topic modeling as an exercise in discovery. And I think Peter sort of phrased it nicely before when he talked about how we got into this project. I think it's fair to say that when we jumped in it, in this project of analyzing the English reports, maybe we had some you know, broad ideas that we wanted to check in the data, but we didn't approach it with any sort of ex-ante specific hypothesis. It really was a discovery exercise. That's on topic modeling. If I can add to that, you know, sometimes mentioning computers, machines, and statistical methods and generative probability models make things sound a little bit more complicated than they actually are. I like the following analogy. Suppose we imagine a person in 1760 or something like that sitting down and thinking about English law, let's call him uh, Professor Blackstone, just to choose a random name. 
And he reads as many legal cases as he can. And then he says, oh, well, I see that English law should be split up into a hundred categories and I'll give the titles to my chapters. That's what we generate. But the computer tells him which cases exhibit those chapters best of all. And, you know, so I believe that one can characterize in some ways the process of a legal historian as topic modeling, you know, reading a lot of documents, deciding which cases fit in which chapters, and deciding which chapters should appear in their digest of the law. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful summary of the process. Of course, you know, not everybody is Professor Blackstone, right? So <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine a whole lot of people that will be able to go and read a corpus like that. I mean, you could possibly read it over a long period of time, but it's hard to imagine how somebody could remember things to an extent that they would really be able to categorize them, synthesize them somehow and, and produce a, a good digest. So one sort of helpful conceptual element of topic modeling that I think lots of people like to emphasize is to just think about this idea that a topic, so a chapter of a digest, is effectively a probability distribution over vocabulary in the corpus, right? So some topics use certain vocabulary more intensively. And every document, in our case, a case report, is by definition a mixture of topics, where it's clear that some case reports, some documents will be much more focused on a particular topic. You know, might be Slade's case, and, and that might be then a sumset, right? So to build on one thing that Peter M. mentioned in your last question, how do you see traditional and computational legal history relating to and complementing one another? I think I see two important ways, right? One is sort of like at the nitty gritty level. The other one is at the broader level. So, you know, when we briefly talked about topic modeling before and what it does, we emphasize this idea that topic modeling is an unsupervised method, right? Where these topics are actually generated through the estimation. They're not assumed ex ante. But when we say that they're generated through the estimation, that doesn't mean that then, you know, as soon as the estimation is over, the whole process is over. That's actually when the whole process only begins because it's left to the researcher to give those topics meaning, to interpret them. And that's where we had to dig into traditional legal history. And, and that's why Peter M. previously emphasized, you know, that that wasn't an easy process. We really had to study and, and read a lot and it was an enjoyable process, but I remember that it was also very difficult. So from that perspective, right, I don't think it's at all possible to do this research without having at least some background understanding and sometimes a lot of in-depth reading on particular subject matters that appear in the legal history literature to try to make sense of the output of topic modeling. Yeah, I think there are a few things that topic modeling does that are very hard to do by traditional methods. Um, one of them is seeing the diffusion of ideas across cases. So 
You know, what topic modeling allows us to do is to see how sets of ideas in one area are correlated later on with sets of ideas in another area. And I think that's just very difficult to do with manual reading because sometimes when sets of ideas diffuse, they diffuse into other cases in, shall we say, very unimportant ways in the other cases that not emphasize because when judges write up their opinions, and this was the case in the 17th century, they emphasized what was new and distinctive. And the diffused ideas from earlier on would appear just as, you know, small items in what they were doing. Now, you know, if you have one or two sentences in cases, then somebody just reading a few cases, which is inevitable given how many cases there are, you will not see the pattern arising. But topic modeling can pick up that diffusion. Two or three sentences across 2,000 cases is really going to be picked up by the topic model estimates. I think one aspect of this sort of complementing aspect of computational legal history, of how it complements traditional research is related to what Peter mentioned now. Uh, I really like this phrase that people use in the humanities where topic modeling has been used a lot, right? And in fact, originated when it comes to applications is that it allows people to uh, tap into what they call the great unread, right? So if one reads the legal history textbooks or analysis, typically, right, naturally, authors will focus on the landmark cases and highlight those most important cases and so on. But that's only one sort of relatively small element of the entire body of legal development, right? And very frequently, pragmatically, practically, for people who are affected by the law, right? It's the ironing out the nuances that have perhaps been establishing in those landmark cases that are really important. And those then happen through a large volume of additional further cases that are maybe not especially interesting, that they're not celebrated in the legal history literature, but at the aggregate level, altogether, they may be very important. And that's why these, you know, computational machine learning based methods allow you to bring in in the aggregate. I think your last answer covered some of the promises of computational text analysis for legal history but could you tell us a bit about both the promises and the pitfalls of text analysis and as it applies to legal history? So I think one of them, one of the pitfalls comes from one of the advantages of computational analysis and then the advantage is to offer a macro perspective. Now, if you're getting a macro perspective, you're by necessity not seeing the micro perspective. So the approaches of the type that we've used in our research will, for example, not detect or, or focus on you know, nuances and changes in legal doctrines and why they arose and who was the individual that at a particular point in time and for what reasons went one way versus the other way. They also won't capture the sentiment of what was going on, even though there are computational methods that one could apply for example, to legal reports as well, to try to capture the sentiment. 
but these are the main pitfalls that I see. I, I remember in your article, you had some good responses to those who were skeptical. If you want to add those in here, feel free. I think one perspective that there is, is that I think we were ourselves skeptical when we first got into that. Exactly. And, and in, in fact, we were, we were really surprised about, you know, the quality of output once it was interpreted that these methods generated. And I think that's perhaps an important point to emphasize because after all, the particular method that we've been using and that's topic modeling, in fact, conceptualizes a text as a bag of words, which is outrageous <laughs> if you are you know, a legal historian or a legal scholar, because it basically says that the order of words as they appear doesn't matter, right? So you would expect that lots of nuances of topics, for example, would be lost as a result of that method. But it turns out that that's not quite the case. Uh, and there are sort of technical reasons why that would be the case, because these topics, the way that they are generated through the optimization algorithm, leverage co-appearance of words across documents, right? And also leverage at the background, the metadata. So the information about these documents, the reports, for example, who produced them, when they produced them, that can help, that can facilitate the identification of, let's say the boundaries of these topics. I'd like to emphasize what Peter just said there, that we decided we would not use a small number of topics and we would let the data choose the number of topics insofar as that's possible with statistical methods. And when we found out there were 100 topics, we were rather daunted, of course. And I remember the process distinctly. We were both reading documents that were highly rated within topics. And about every two days, one of us would get on the phone to the other one saying, this is amazing how much this topic is picking up about legal processes. And, you know, that's part of the fun of writing articles, but it's also very important from a substantive point of view that we were seeing there was something real there. It wasn't just the computer is producing higgledy-piggledy output, but rather producing something that seemed very coherent. And that increased our faith in the method by an enormous amount. I think that was also, you know, a moment where we started really seeing the connections, right, with legal history texts. I remember we would talk and we'd say, oh, you know, I read about this in Baker in that chapter. It's really interesting how something that he briefly commented on then really appeared materialized in that output. What does your raw data consist of and what is the nature of that data? How did you choose your topics and keywords? Why did you choose to focus on this particular area of English law? So our raw data are actually the English reports. To be precise, it's the digitized version that was, I think, already in the ASCII format. And so the data is the body of the entire body of the text. 
the nature of the data is textual in this sense. Now, of course, when one gets that body of the text, there was a huge amount of effort that we had to invest in, shall we say, getting that data ready for computational, for empirical analysis. And I mean, that involved just a lot of programming, you know, a lot of wrestling with details. You know, one thing that we had to do was address the issue that we're talking about several centuries of law, where the English language itself has changed, where the spelling of of a particular concept has changed over time. And because of the nature of this method, which, you know, does leverage the use of words across documents, if you want to pick up these topics appropriately, if you want to define them appropriately through the optimization algorithm, you want to address those issues. So we had to do a lot of standardization of the English orthography and the fact that Peter M is English originally really helped for that. And once we got that ready, right, we had to associate those individual case reports also with what people sometimes refer to as metadata. So the information about the reports that is not in the reports themselves. So this would typically be the year, okay, which is also mentioned in the report, who the reporter was, at which court the particular case was being heard. And once we had that, that had to be put in the appropriate format that would then be usable in the analysis that we were supposed to conduct. So that's about the raw data and the nature of the data. When it comes to the question of how we chose our topics and keywords, of course, we have to again emphasize and clarify here that we did not choose topics ex ante. Topics emerged through that discovery process, through the optimization process, through the application of these machine learning methods. And what we had to do is interpret them. So for example, we would see for which topic, for example, topic seven, which words are most highly associated with that topic, right? And then one would go and one would read through those keywords. And, and you know, sometimes you might have a clue about what that topic might be about. You know, it might involve terms that refer to contracts, but you know, which aspects about contracts exactly is this all about? Is it about breach of contracts? Is it about how contracts should be stated? Lots of nuances like that. So to really understand that, there is no way to just be looking at the keywords, but we also had to look at, read through literally the case reports that featured that particular topic most prominently. And sometimes that you know involved reading a hundred of them, right? And trying to understand what that particular topic really is about. And when that becomes really interesting is because sometimes, you know, we were in the process where we were like, oh, I think we understand that topic. And then we ended up with another topic that was clearly distinct, but it also was also somewhat similar in the broader spirit. And then you try to find a way to clearly delineate the differences between those two topics, because there's a reason why that unsupervised algorithm separated, for example, those themes into two separate topics. So in other words, we merely interpreted the topics after the topics were produced on the basis of the keywords and on the basis of the case reports that highlighted those topics most prominently. The last part of your question is why we choose to focus on this particular area of English law. Well, What that relates to is things I mentioned at the beginning about why we were particularly interested in the 17th century and the surrounding decades. That 
time period, I believe, is when really the English economy and English democracy were in the process of formation. And lots of people have talked about the Glorious Revolution as being the absolute center of that whole process. It, you know, to exaggerate, they almost say everything started with the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights the next year and the Act of Settlement in 1701. And our idea has always been that case law is really, really the most important thing about English law, not statute law, at least at that time period. And so we really wanted to be able to put case law into a quantitative perspective because always our eyes were on the economics community in producing these papers. And if I can do a little bit of advertising, after we produced the papers we've already talked about, we've also produced papers that relate the development of the economy to the development of law. And we're getting some very interesting results. For instance, we are finding out for the time period up to 1765, how important law on inheritance and families was. And we view that as important because that led to the elaboration of a very, very systematic law on trusts, which is so important for the development of finance. So how does your methodology differ from those that base the interpretation of topics only on a perusal of the words that a topic most uses? What new insights are gained by using your methodology? I think one of the key issues that, very subtle issues that emerges from trying to understand and interpret the output from topic modeling really arises when one tries to connect these topics attention to specific topics to, to a time dimension. And that can be done because in topic modeling, what happens is that um, the topic model estimates, you know, the proportion of each topic in each document in the corpus. And because for each document, you also know the year of when that document was generated, you know, when a particular case was being adjudicated, you can therefore produce a timeline of how the average prevalence of a given topic okay, varies over time. And that gives you sort of an idea about how development of law varies over time, an idea about the flow of legal history. And the key subtle issue that we encountered at that point is the idea that a prevalence of a particular topic at a given point in time, right, is not really reflective of the use, overall use of that topic, of those legal ideas. Just yeah. like the prevalence of a word. Just like the prevalence of a word, yeah. Prevalence of a given topic at a given point in time does not really adequately reflect the overall use, the extent of use of those legal ideas at that particular point in time. And in the context of legal history and, and law, I think that's, that's actually fairly easy to understand once one thinks about it. Particular legal ideas and concepts will be used a lot, right, when they're contentious, when those issues are being brought in front of court and they're being litigated. 
But at the point in time where, you know, using a sumsit to, for example, adjudicate issues that have to do with debt is widely accepted, then it's much less likely that those legal issues will continue to arise in courts. And therefore, the attention to those particular legal ideas is going to be lower, not because those legal ideas somehow vanished from the legal world, but it's because they've become a part of the accepted knowledge of the accepted set of ideas. You know, you could make an analogy here with COVID, right? Uh, with the COVID curves. And what was really interesting, and you don't have to put that in the paper, but I want to say it is we were doing those things exactly at the time when these COVID curves started being shown everywhere. How do you find, or how do you think you're finding that several pertinent areas of law were substantially settled well before 1688 reframes understandings of economic history? And how did topic modeling allow you to see this conclusion? And, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but if you want to elaborate at all. Yeah, well, I think that uh, goes back to what uh, I talked about at the beginning, you know, this the fulcrum of 1688. And really what we have shown is that lots of hugely important areas of law started developing well before 1688. Uh, Peter mentioned a sumsit just a moment ago, and of course that fundamental element of contract law, our data shows was settled by about the 1630s or something like that. And then what one sees is during the time of the restoration, there was really a broad articulation of law on mortgages, on repaying debts and the rules, therefore, on negotiable bills and so on. And so what one sees is that, you know, 1688 did not lead to any sort of discontinuity in the production of law that was relevant for a capitalist economy, but rather Perhaps it affected politics a lot. I'm sure it did, but I would say it didn't affect law at all. And some of the subsequent papers that I talked about a moment ago show that in more detail. How are understandings of economic history reframed, taking into consideration that a large part of the creation of English law and finance was a product of equity? This was one of the results where I think we had one of those very interesting moments where I remember we generated the results. I think we were having a Zoom and we were looking at the computer and we saw this finding about, you know, the tremendous importance of equity for development of legal ideas relevant to finance. And I remember I was looking at it and I asked Peter, M, did you know about this? And I think his answer was no. I mean, did you? I said, no. <laughs> and then we sort of started looking at, you know, also the legal history literature. And it's certainly the case, I have no doubt, right, that it would be a known fact to a well-versed legal historian that, for example, legal ideas relevant to mortgages or trusts really emanated to a large extent from the chancery uh, and not from the common law courts. Uh, but nobody at least to the best of our knowledge, has sort of articulated this perspective in part, I think, because finance is not a category or a chapter that one would find in a legal history textbook, right? 
nobody has articulated this contrast between the importance of common law courts versus equity for the development of the timing of specific ideas uh, relevant to finance. Now, why did we as economists find that especially interesting? So if I also go back in time, you know, when I was first Peter M. student, I read that hugely influential article by Andre Schleifer and his co-authors that was titled Legal Origins. And this was a paper by economists that tried to explain why is it that different societies, in particular, let's say England versus France, you know, developed different ways of adjudicating disputes and different legal systems as such. And there was some prior work, in fact, that preceded that particular article that was empirical in spirit, that was titled Law and Finance. And I think, and Peter M can correct me, I think this is perhaps the most widely cited economics paper, at least in relatively recent history on law and finance. Certainly up there. Certainly up there, a hugely influential that really sort of gave a spurt to an entire new literature on the importance of law and legal origins. And the point is that in that entire literature, emphasis is on the, shall we call, the advantages of the common law system over the civil law, continental European system, arguing that common law produces, in some sense, superior outcomes and emphasizing the importance of things like judicial independence, relatively more judicial independence, you know, maybe greater adaptability of law. So these sort of macro level legal system aspects, right? And I will be honest, and I will say that until we really dug into this research, I have heard of equity, but I, because I'm not English originally, and I don't, didn't grow up in that type of legal system, I would have never thought that that has any relevance or any great importance for the development of the economy. And it certainly is not mentioned or is not in any way emphasized in that literature on legal origins that emphasizes the importance of common law. Now, if we take these findings from our research and we try to interpret them, they sort of suggest, right, that aspect of the English legal system, I didn't say the common law legal system, but the English legal system that really was tremendously important for development of law and finance actually doesn't have the features that the traditional economics literature emphasizes as being the features of the English law that are supposed to give English law its supremacy in that domain. In fact, it seems like equity was more important. And I found that to be sort of a fascinating outcome, not something that we in any way envisaged when we embarked on that project. Uh, it simply emerged from our wrestling with the data trying to connect the different components of the data to the output that we were generating and exploring what's there. So it was very much inductive in process, not based on some sort of an ex-ante hypothesis. The way we summarized this finding in the paper in the end was England would have never been powerful enough to spread the common law around the world had it relied solely on the common law. And, you know, that really struck us that inside, you know, when you read about these equity cases and you read the cases, you see that one, the head of the court, the Lord Chancellor, doesn't have any judicial independence. He never did. 
he was not included in the clause in the act of settlement that led to judicial independence. The judges are very interventionist. They manage trusts. People come to them to make essentially management decisions. And there are no juries involved and so on. So this is an incredibly different perspective that one gets on English law than the broad brush approach that one is going to read about if one is an economic student. Now, here, I want to emphasize, we're probably talking about things that legal historians know perfectly well. And, you know, so we apologize for that. For my last question, how do you predict that the unsupervised nature of topic modeling might alter the future of legal historical research? So I think there's sort of two elements to it. I think, of course, we want to stress that while in that particular article that we're discussing today, we focus on topic modeling, there are many other methods, computational methods, machine learning methods that are unsupervised in spirit right? It's unsupervised in the sense that the objects of interests, for example, in our case, topics are not somehow assumed ex ante and then verified in the data, which is what one would do in a typical hypothesis testing exercise, but rather they emerged from that exploratory process. And, you know, one of the things that I think we emphasize in the paper is that this unsupervised learning is a method that would seem to be especially applicable to historical and legal historical research, where the goal is to learn something new about the flow of history or the flow of legal history, as opposed to focusing on a narrow particular hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis and, and focusing on causality. So, so one way to answer your question is to say that the use of these methods could really put upfront the methodology that is standard or has been standard in historical and legal historical research, but merge it with new ways of looking at the cases at a macro scale. So that'd be one interpretation. And then there are, of course, further interpretations. I think that the use of these computational methods then in many ways introduces the notions that are perhaps more standard in social sciences into historical and legal historical research. And that is the idea that, you know, one generates data that is then not this data that is used by the authors, but that data can be used subsequently by other authors. In fact, one of the things that we try to emphasize in the paper is that topic modeling, at least as we've seen it, and that's not to be clear, something that we understood right away several years ago when we embarked on this exercise of working with these methods. The topic modeling is not an end in itself, but the topic modeling really becomes useful and especially interesting and can give rise to research when one views it as a method for generating data that can then be used subsequently. And that data generated by topic modeling can then be used either in descriptive exercises to, for example, study the flow of history, development of law, the relationship between different legal ideas and their diffusion that Peter talked about. But it can also be used to address more causal questions, right? For example, did the development of law in a particular legal domain affect economic development or not? 
I think these are the possibilities that then emerge if one embraces these perspectives that we've tried to pursue. To me, the sharing of data seems to be enormously important. And I have to say that I admire legal historians a lot, but there is one thing that disturbs me when I read the typical legal history paper, which is on every page, I ask myself the question, how does he or she know that? How does he or she know that? And it seems like it's impossible to ever replicate the process that legal historians go through because you're not being given enough information there. Anybody can replicate what we did. The data is all on my website and people can put in different assumptions and say, hey, your conclusions depend critically on this assumption. And we find when we vary it a little bit, we get something different. So your conclusion just is incredibly weak. And I think that's just very important. And these computational methods lend themselves very well to this whole type of process. I also think there's something else that I found that is very important. We all know the term Whig history, you know, finishing up with the conclusion that you started out with. In topic modeling, because it's unsupervised, it's not something that will happen. You finish up with unexpected things and they cause you to rethink the historical process you're trying to understand. And I think that will change history gradually over time. Well, I really want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We've enjoyed it very much.